I'd like to introduce myself in my language, if that's okay. So I want to say hello. Miyuyam, Notung Rebecca Yaka. Hello. My name is Rebecca Tortoise. I am Payam Kwicham, um, also known as Lasenio, but we are uh, not using mission-based names anymore. Kawia and Asinabon Sioux. I am the co-founder and director of the California Tribal Fund. I live and work in um, unceded Tongva territory in the city of Claremont, California. I've worked with tribal communities here in Southern California for about 25 years. Most recently, I was the executive director of California Indian Basket Weavers Association, which is a statewide organization of tribal basket weavers. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Chapters podcast series. I'm your host, John Barrett Ingalls. In our chapter series, we focus on stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. But with all that is happening in our country right now, in this historic moment ripe with the potential for change and growth, we are expanding our scope and amplifying the voices of organizations and individuals who are trying to make a difference, who are standing at the convergence of art, education, and social justice. With this series, we honor those who have struggled and suffered in the past and question, how are we still here? How have we not come any further than this? In this episode, we connect with Rebecca Tortoise, Executive Director for California Tribal Fund. Rebecca discusses her work in philanthropy and grant-making with California Tribal Fund and First Nations Development Institute. We discuss the challenges and obstacles tribal community organizations face when requesting funding or grant opportunities, and the importance of tribal-led philanthropic organizations like First Nations Development Institute. Let's start by first talking about uh, First Nations Development Institute, how the organization started, and, and how's it evolved over the past four decades? First Nations Development Institute is a 43-year-old, to keep forgetting, 501c3 uh, nonprofit charitable organization. Uh, we began in 1980 as the First Nations Financial Project, and we became First Nations Development Institute in 1991. We are a national nonprofit Native American organization, and our mission is to strengthen American Indian economies, to support healthy Native communities. And our vision is uh, we believe in sovereign Indigenous communities' control um, and that they should control their physical, economic, social, cultural, political, and human assets. So we consider ourselves an intermediary um, and we work primarily with uh, tribal governments, Native American-controlled nonprofit organizations, as well as Native American community groups. Um, we really believe that uh, Native people have all the assets and the genius that they need to continue to build and support their communities. Um, we really focus on a three-pronged strategy. We educate our grassroots uh, practitioners at the tribal level. We advocate for a systemic change, and we help Native Americans build social economic uh, development projects. So we do that through uh, technical assistance and training, uh, coalition building, advocacy, policy and research. And then also a big part of that is that direct financial um, grant making. Um, in 2022, we invested over $12.5 million into um, grant making. We distributed over 410 grants 
and reached over 140 unique individuals through our policy and research and opinion pieces. I'd love to talk about that grant-making element or, or philanthropic element. How important, when you're looking at philanthropy from and for Native Americans, how important is it to have an organization like First Nations Development Institute with that lived experiential knowledge of where the need is the greatest? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I can't, um, the importance of it is it's vital to the health, the health of our Native American communities. Um, I worked with tribal communities here in Southern California for the past 25 years. Um, one of the reasons why we started the California Tribal Fund and the reason why it is housed under First Nations Development Institute is just because we saw and continue to see a real lack of awareness and understanding and actual interest in mainstream um, philanthropy in uh, tribal communities. We did um, a study from 2002 to 2016 um, that showed that only 0.4% of foundational giving was awarded to Native American community and causes. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's not even 1%, it's 0.4%. And when we say it was awarded to Native community and causes, actually that means that of that 0.4%, 65% of those dollars did not explicitly benefit Native American communities. So those grants went to non-Native controlled organizations that through their normal programs happened to serve Native American communities. So I don't, I don't actually know the math of that, sure. but it's... 0.4% and it's 65% of that 0.0%. So we really believe that that means that philanthropy um, in general has helped and perpetuated predatory fundraising practices, whereby non-Native controlled organizations continue to receive a large majority of the philanthropic support that is meant to do work in our Native communities. So that means that uh, non-Native organizations are getting the funding to serve Native communities. Um, we do view that as a philanthropic colonialism in a sense. And we believe that it continues to dismiss indigenous frameworks and practices and that we as tribal people aren't getting the support to lead community-led grassroots projects. You touched on it a little bit about your history and your work, but let, let's tell it. Let's you, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to start working with the California Tribal Fund? I've worked with tribal communities here in Southern California for about 25 years. So I was a former grant writer, um, tribal administrator, and most recently I was the executive director of California Indian Basket Weavers Association, which is a statewide organization of tribal basket weavers. So I came into this work primarily as previously being a grant writer. I worked with federal and state grants and was very good at my job. I I have secured several million dollars in funding. When I began working with a native-controlled nonprofit, California Indian Basketball Association, it was really a rude awakening. Whereas before, I would be able to secure a million dollars, half a million dollars for projects. I was doing that same amount of work for eight to ten thousand hmm. dollars. Um, I was getting turned down on a regular basis by funders who would place us in different funding silos. Um, you know, basketry is seen as, a, as an art 
And sometimes people only want to fund the art. They don't want to fund the land access that goes, that, that relates to us gathering basketry um, plants and materials. They don't want to fund the language that goes into, um, you know, how we interact with our, with our baskets and, and with our land. Um, they didn't want to fund the traditional ecological knowledge or, um, you know, the cultural burning. A lot of our basket weaving materials, they require to be regularly burned in order to create good materials. So a lot of funders didn't want to fund those different spaces. They just wanted to fund the physical, quote unquote, art part of um, weaving. So during that time, I met another, another. well, she's actually now a vice president here at First Nations, Ade Brionis. And I met her through my work at, at California Indian Basket Weavers Association. She came out to a gathering. They were one of our only funders that we ever had in the private philanthropic space that came to our events, that called and checked in, that I felt were really actually interested in the work that we were doing. So I like to tell people that, you know, the story of the California Tribal Fund is um, a simple story and it's a personal story. And some people might say it's a small story. And really, it's just that two Native American women sat down for dinner one night and just had a conversation about um, our experiences with the um, philanthropic community. And then how did the California Tribal Fund get folded into First Nations Yeah. So in February of 2020, after I had had my conversation with Ade, we brought together a group of 12 California tribal leaders and practitioners for a two-day workshop in San Francisco. And really, we just wanted to discuss with them if we felt any philanthropic organization ever got it right, what was, quote unquote, easier to fund, both if we did have good experiences um, versus what would we, if we had, if we had program officers from philanthropic organizations in a room with us, what would we want to tell them? You know, what would we want to share with them? So we did that for a day and a half. And then the second day we had invited originally um, 12 philanthropic organizations and program officers. So news spread fast that we were having this event and we ended up having 28 program officers that mm. that showed up. And um, we had to take our um, workshops outside because we simply didn't have enough room. So during that, that first initial meeting, we decided, yes, we did want to, to launch the California Tribal Fund. You know, there are other funds that fund this work in California, but there are no funds that are California-based that only support California tribes, both federally and non-federally recognized, as well as California tribal communities. So we had said, we are going to be a California tribal-led organization. We will be a California tribal-staffed organization. We will be a California tribal advisory committee advised organization. And we had um, a wonderful initial um, commitment from the SWIFT Foundation as well as the California Endowment Foundation. And then what happened three weeks later is the state shut down. <laughs> so without a formal mission, vision, you know, values, a funding guidelines, uh, we had immediately within the month of March, two funders reach out to us and they wanted us to mobilize over a million dollars in COVID funding. So I like to say we literally, you know, 
when they say like we built the boat while we were already on the ocean, that is what we did. Right. We created our mission, vision, and values in a space of six months, all online because we were not we were not gathering together to protect each other. But the lovely part of that is that because of that flexibility and you know that ingenuity, we were able to create something that has continued to serve us two and a half years later. And that um, we do find a group of funders, it really resonates with them. So, yeah. Yeah, I. this is a kind of the converse to an earlier question. Um, you know, we talked about how important it is to have an organization inside of the tribal community for philanthropy. But it must be pretty vital to also seek these outside supports as well, right? These outside funding organizations that are, are are wanting to support and help. Yes. You know, we um, have been very lucky and people keep telling me it's not luck that this is what was meant to happen. But we have had funders that have contacted us and they have said, you know, we really believe in what you are doing. And they have given us that the same type of uh, trust as we give our grantees as well. Um, we work with 29 unique funders right now. So in the little over three years that we have been in operation, we have mobilized almost $3 million in grant funding through over 175 unique grants. So we've worked with 70 grantees. So here in the state of California, there are 110 federally recognized tribes and over 80 that are seeking federal recognition. Uh, state recognized tribes often um, operate through a 501c nonprofit. So we, our, our original goal was, you know, by in five years, we would love to have 25% of um, these organizations and tribes somehow be a recipient of our funding. Hmm. And we're already there. We're wow. there in, in year three. So, um, you know, did, it's it's really exciting. Did that COVID tidal wave right at the beginning kind of consume a lot of that initial work? Or were you able to diversify? So COVID funding. So the funny thing is, is that our funding is steady in terms of our funding and in terms of um, our grant making, our funding has actually grown post COVID. Hmm. So for a lot of organizations, that's not the case. You know, we had this influx of COVID related funding, but I believe in our, in year one, we granted around like 850,000 year two, we went up to 1.2 and now in halfway through this year, I believe we're already at, uh, we're approaching 800,000. So we are growing in a like a steady, um, sustainable manner. That's something that we focus on, on as as a fund. Um, so we are very again lucky to be in a in a period of growth when many um, philanthropic organizations and funds are not in that that space. But that's also for First Nations in general. Um, you know, in 2022, we had the most impactful year in terms of our grant making. So it's it's real. We're really in a unique space. I'd love to talk about some of the challenges facing California tribes that are unique to the tribes in this state, as opposed to 
some of the other Western tribes? Sure. So um, I like to say when I'm when I'm speaking to um, about California, um, you know, we have a unique history of trauma and we have a unique history of resilience. We have, um, you know, things that other states just simply do not have. We had the mission system come through, um, you know, from 1769 to uh, until uh, California became a state in 1850. That was followed by the gold rush. And during the gold rush, um, they estimate that over 150,000, which I still think is very low, indigenous people lived in California, and that 60% of our population passed away uh, mm-hmm. due to diseases that were introduced by by people coming into our state. You know, and then after that, we had boarding schools. Um, many people have heard, or maybe they haven't heard that um, phrase, uh, kill the Indian, save the man. And that was the founding mission of Richard Pratt, which he was the driving force behind um, Indian boarding schools. So there were 25 of those in California. Um, my grandparents um, went to them. They refused to talk about their experience of what they went through when they were in boarding schools. Um, you know, but it wasn't till I am 45. It wasn't till 1978 that parents won the legal right to prevent family separation. So that was during, you know, our times as well. Um, that there is the fact that we have uh, so many non-federally recognized tribes in the state of California. And um, that is because, again, and I always say follow the timeline when you're looking at these things. When was the gold rush? What was important for, to California? You know, between 1851 and 1852, the uh, United States Army forced uh, California tribes to sign 18 treaties that relinquished their rights to uh, their traditional land in in, um, return for reservation land. I believe it was 750 million acres that we lost to those treaties. So those were lost treaties. They were just never ratified. So I always tell people, imagine if, you know, you purchased a home you signed all the paperwork, you're living there, and someone comes and tells you, actually, you didn't purchase this home and you need to vacate immediately. I mean, that is a very large oversimplification of the process, but that is what happened. Um, you know, and that's why we have so many um, non federally recognized tribes. It's also part of the reason why we have like the small rancheria um, system. So, we have grantees that we work with that their reservation is one square mile. And then we have, you know, grantees that are like Yurok that have a very large uh, reservation space. But I don't think people realize that. There's also this misconception that every tribe in the state of California is a gaming tribe. And that just simply is not, is not the case. Um, with Even with gaming tribes, there's a misconception that they are all large. A lot of the gaming tribes that have a gaming compact operate very small operations as well. So, yeah. I'm thinking of that term now of the boarding schools that kill the Indian, save the man. And and I think it leads into one of these projects that that First Nation is working on, the Reclaiming reclaiming Native Truth projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am often saddened with this work that I do, 
that whenever I'm researching a topic, I'm often saddened by how little I know. Um, and, you know, a lot of that falls on me. Like, obviously, there's information to learn if you just take the time, but a lot of it falls on the public education system. And then that sadness gets amplified when I, I share these episodes and I regularly hear, wow, I didn't know that, or I didn't know that happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, so who, who gets to tell the story is so important. And especially now in this uh, time with, with this uptick of book banning and whitewashing Absolutely. of history and public education. Will you talk a little bit about the Reclaiming Native Truth Project? Yeah. Um, so I think before I start with that, I, 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 I'll probably you'll hear a lot of stories because we're always we're always our story, storytellers, you know. Um, I have two stories that I'd like to to tell. My daughter um, is she's seventeen now, but when she was eight years old here in Claremont at the Robert Redford Conservancy, they had a project um, that the students got to go to the conservancy and learn about local uh, Tongva culture and learn about their creation story, you know, what they ate, uh, just a little basket weaving and such. And my daughter, they had a little booklet and she brought it home and she said, I told them, my mom knows these people. And they said, no, those people are dead. Oh, jeez. And she goes, no, my mom knows these people. We go to basket weaving with them. <laughs> and she said, people did not believe that I was Native American. So the second time I was at the Autry Museum um, here in Los Angeles, and they had a wonderful um, exhibit on basket weeding. And one of um, our former board members, well, actually, they're still a board member at California Indian Basket Weaving Association, Clint McKay. There was this wonderful video of him with his family weaving. And I was standing there looking at it, and there was a group of grade school kids there. And they said, are these people still alive? And I think that's one of the main things that I think about when I think about the um, reclaiming Native truth and what we do in terms of our education system. Native Americans were, we are presented on in the Native, in the education system, just in key places, mm-hmm. you know, in, in mission system, in the, these, these very tight um, timelines. And we're not seen as as modern people, you know, that are that are living next to you and beside you, and that are continuing. Um, we've never stopped tending our land. We've never stopped practicing our language. We've never stopped all of these things. But you know that um, education system doesn't allow us. It doesn't allow children to learn about us as modern people. And also, um, I believe that a lot, you know, there's no modern lens to what we look like mm. as as people. Um, they don't see that as like necessary. You know, what, when do you first learn about Native Americans? If you th- think about it, it is uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe when Columbus, quote unquote, discovered, yeah. you know, the Americas. 
The Mayflower, yeah. Yes. And maybe um, if you were still um, my age in California, you know, maybe you had to do a mission system Mm -hmm. project. And of course, the the Native Americans in the mission system were very happy because they were being saved by the mission systems, you know. But our history in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s today, that's not taught I was speaking with a couple of um, my coworkers last week on a, a site visit, and we were talking about how, you know, you have to pay a college level uh, tuition before you can actually be aghast about the things that happen to our tribal communities, right. you know, and the, and the, the sad thing is speaking to what you were saying about, you know, book banning and um, like elementary and uh, education is that I truly believe as a parent, that's when your child, your children are most empathetic. They still have that flexibility of their mind to have diverse ideas. And it really breaks my heart that they, a lot of this history is is just, it's, it's just like based on empathy. Like nobody likes when things like that happen to another human being. So why are these things not being taught, you know, in, in public schools? There are some school districts that are beginning to um, step into this space. So I worked with the Pachanga Band of um, Luceno Indians at their Chamaquilawish school. They have a wonderful dual enrollment Luceno language program, but they work with their local school district a lot on lesson plans and um, teaching the history of the local people in that area. But those are just, those are, those are, those type of um, things are few and far between. When I was growing up, we're, we're the same age, and I was from born and raised in California as well. And we went to, I'm in Northern California, we went to a, a Miwok village. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's similar to your daughter's experience, it, but it, it felt like it was a history lesson instead of looking at a contemporary, you know, uh, modern society you know, we it was we went back to learn how these people once lived, as opposed to how people are living now. But I think I see how pop culture can be a tool to for sharing stories and normalizing tribal life and and owning that narrative. I, I think of shows like Reservation Dogs and Dark mm-hmm. Winds, and uh, and Marvel is is going to be pushing out this series called Echo coming mm-hmm. up, and hopefully they'll do it right. Um, but I think that that's like an opening for the, you know, those of us outside of that tribal community to, to get the sense of, of normalcy and, and not have to put it in this bubble that's been fed to us for, you know, decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I truly believe that um, my child's generation, you know, that a lot of people, they talk about Instagram or TikTok or things like that, all the detriment. And I, I do believe that there's a positive to it. Um, we have several grantees that um, during COVID, they did um, videos on um, vaccine equity 
in terms of in their tribal communities. Um, they did videos of, um, you know, language videos. They did videos for beating. Um, we, they connected with elders and continued intergenerational activities that they were doing in person. You know, they really stepped into that space and utilized those tools to continue to um, learn and grow together. I like to say we right now will be people's ancestors one day, and we need to focus on being good ancestors and not just being descendants. And I really see a lot of our young people in tribal community stepping into that space and being good ancestors. Tribal youth are cultural bearers, and they are our next generation of cultural bearers. So I find it very exciting that they are using uh, new tools to connect uh, with each other and with the greater community as well. I think that sometimes people don't realize that we are modern people as well. And when we utilize modern tools to connect, a, a little bit more, um, you know, interest. I'll, I will take any interest if, if people are like, oh, I'm interested in learning about that. Why? Why did they say that? You know, what I want to know more about this. Like, I, I love that shift in the narrative. Is is there a push for uh, in indigenous studies and in, in public education or or history or that? Um, pre-colonial history, um, you know, similar to how there's the the push for critical race theory or or uh, ethnic studies in in some communities. Is there a push from tribal communities to get that more into the mainstream curriculum? Um, you know what, I I probably couldn't speak to that it, like on a on a general. Um, cause it really varies, sure, it, var yeah. it varies, it varies from, you know, from city to city and county to county. We have, we have tribal grantees that are in certain spaces in Northern California where they're very rural and 80% of the students in, in that school are Native American. So, you know, by default, the school district is ensuring those things are taking place. But in other areas, that's that's not the case still. So um, it really there's no there's no like one size fits all answer for, mm. for that. Um, I know that many tribes are beginning to um, create their own schools on their reservations because they are not happy with the school districts that their children are being sent to. So in this and the schools that their children are being sent to. But there's also elements that we could, you know, not, I mean, aside from history, as important as that is, that narrative, there's practices, um, plant-based medicine, mm -hmm. um, uh, environmental practices that can help turn the tide with climate change. Is there a, a push to increase that knowledge to the general public? Here in California, Governor Newsom has the 30 by 30 initiative. Part of the 30 by 30 initiative, there is a large dollar amount that is tied to tribally led conservation techniques, which we don't call them that, you know. Um, the term uh, traditional ecological knowledge is, is utilized a lot now. And um, even in some of our communities, we're like, well, we don't call that 
that either. We really practice what we commonly call a concentric view of the world. So we view the animals and, you know, nature, plants, trees, everything as our relatives. Hmm. So we treat them as such. So there are there is funding for these spaces and a lot of groups are doing really good work in this space. But that being said, kind of circling back around to the California Tribal Fund, a lot of tribes have been doing this work for several years and they are in a wonderful place to receive this funding. Others still need to work on the infrastructure in terms of to be able to access that funding. So a lot of the work that we do and the granting that we do is to provide tribes and tribal communities with that initial funding so that they are able to pursue larger scale funding that has to do with uh, climate fixes, which sure. I, I, so I don't like to utilize that, yeah. that, that term. You know, what I will say is that I truly believe that land knows when Indigenous people are tending it. I was recently um, at the Modoc Nation's land up in Tula Lake, California. They have been tending a little over 700 acres now for two years. You can see their property line. It's like a stark contrast of what the land looks like on the other side that is being utilized by ranchers and traditional grazers, you know, using traditional techniques. The land on the other side is lush. It's verdant. There are animals coming back to it. But the, but a lot of these grants they want the science behind that. They want, you know, metrics. They want objectives. They want specific things. And that's not necessarily how we as tribal people interact with our environment. So that was one of the other reasons why we created this fund. Um, the majority, 80% of our grant making is done through general operations support. So we don't ask for things like, you know, we need we yeah. need an environmental assessment mm -hmm. of why you need to do this. We need all of these things in order for you to access this funding. What we ask for, and because we're already in community, is we just want a conversation. Hmm. We want to have a conversation. We want to walk the land with you. We want to see things with you. We want to listen, number one. We want to learn with you, and then we want to serve you in what way we can. It's it's a little different in terms of how we do our funding and how we we enter into this space. So if some if a tribe wants to access, um, you know, funding through the thirty by thirty program, we're happy to help augment that. A lot of state grants and federal grants they um, require a match of some sort or they require certain things in order to access them first. So we're happy to help with that. And then we're happy to help um, grantees that are just getting started on this journey and they don't, they don't know where to start. And they're not even able to attend certain uh, events and learn about where they can be and what their resources are. Again, this just, it comes back to a misconception of the resources that our California tribal communities have. We want to thank Rebecca Tortoise and First Nations Development Institute. For more information, visit firstnations.org. Chapters podcast was produced by Past Forward and made possible with support from Chapman University and California Civil Liberties Public Education Program, a state-funded grant project of the California State Library. For more information, visit pastforward.org, chapman.edu.
and library.ca.gov.